We've been looking in Hebrews 11.32 at those who get honorable mention in God's hall of faith. And this morning I want us to focus again on Samson. His life story is told in four chapters in the book of Judges, and he is clearly the most popular judge in that book. In fact, if I asked you which judge you'd rather be like, if you could just eliminate that eye-gouging-out scene, you would probably pick Samson. He's the real-life Rambo. He plays one on a thousand and wins. He's unlike the other judges, unlike Jephthah that we'll see next. He doesn't come from a dysfunctional family. Unlike Ehud, he has no physical limitation. Unlike Gideon and Barak, he doesn't lack confidence. He's got a great family. He's, he's a superman. There's no reason for him to fail. He was voted most likely to succeed in his graduating class. And yet, he doesn't reach his potential because of compromise. All the other judges teach us the lesson, when I am weak, then am I strong. Samson teaches us the lesson, when I am strong, then am I weak. In Judges chapter 13, we saw last time his advantages. He was born with a silver spoon in his mouth. He had great parents and God's blessing. In chapters 14 and 15, we see the superboy become superman. But in these chapters, as we're going to see today, the seeds of compromise are planted in his life. And then in chapter 16, those seeds of compromise sprout up. Samson's whole life is a living illustration of the principle, if you sow to the flesh, you will from the flesh reap corruption. Somebody has said, most Christians sow wild oats and spend the rest of their lives praying for crop failure. Today we're going to watch Samson sow the seeds of compromise. And I've noted six areas where he stands out as the king of compromise. Number one is his convictions in verses 1 to 3 of chapter 14. Notice verse 1. Then Samson went down to Timnah and saw a woman in Timnah, one of the daughters of the Philistines. So he came back and told his father and mother, I saw a woman in Timnah, one of the daughters of the Philistines. Now therefore, get her for me as a wife. Now what's wrong with this picture? Well, apart from the fact that he's very impulsive. I mean, if you come down to verse 7, we find there it says, so he went down and talked to the woman. He hasn't even talked to her yet. And he's already saying, I want her as my wife. But apart from the fact that he's very impulsive, this woman is a Philistine. He's wanting to marry an unbelieving wife. Now, is that a debatable point in the Old Testament? No. Moses said in Deuteronomy 7, 3, When the Lord your God brings you into the land, you shall not intermarry with them. 
You shall not give your daughters to their sons, nor shall you take their daughters for your sons, for they will turn your sons away from following me to serve other gods. God's very clear about that. He's very clear when he comes to the New Testament. He says in 2 Corinthians 6.14, Do not be bound together with unbelievers. So here's Samson. We know from chapter 13 that the family he was raised in was one that would have grounded him in the Word of God. I'm sure he won sword drills and quiz meets. And so here we find Samson compromising his convictions. Now, how do you do that? Well, I can imagine Samson saying, well, God says thou shalt not. But you know, that was all well and good in Moses' day. But that wouldn't work in our contemporary society. He wasn't living with the Philistines. And we're far more open-minded today. You see, Samson had a clear statement of Scripture telling him, don't do that. And he walks right by it. It's kind of like having the flashing lights and the crossing gate down at the railroad tracks. And this kid climbs right over it. But that's not all. Look at verse 3. Then his father and mother said to him, Is there no woman among the daughters of your relatives or among all our people that you go to take a wife from the uncircumcised Philippines? Philippines? Is that what your Bible says? <laughs> I'm into missions today, so. Um, they say, son, if, if, if we can't find you a Danite bride, then let's go over to Ephraim or Manasseh. Surely there's a Jew Jewish girl out there somewhere for you. You see, they were saying, this is wrong. And what does he say at the end of verse 3? But Samson said to his father, Get her for me, for she looks good to me. He's not only disobeying God's word, he's disregarding his parents. He's disregarding the authority figures that God has placed in his life. He is really disobeying Scripture again because the commandment says what? You shall honor your father and your mother. And what's his logic? She looks good. He's not led by God's word. He's not led by God's authority structure. He is led by his eyes. She looks good. That's why I think it's no coincidence in chapter 16 that his eyes get gouged out. Proverbs 37, 17 says, The eye that mocks a father and scorns a mother, the ravens of the valley will pick it out and the young eagles will eat it. Now notice the phrase, get her for me. This is interesting. He, he doesn't go get this pagan wife for himself. He wants to work through the orthodox structure of Israel. You see, he wants a pagan bride and a Jewish wedding. He is, a, he is disobeying God's word, disregarding his parents, and disguising it in orthodoxy. This is the first seed of compromise. God's word says I shouldn't, but I'm going to do it anyway. 
My parents say I shouldn't, but I'm going to do it anyway, and then I'm going to cloak it in orthodoxy. I'm going to get married in the church. I'm going to give all this a religious coat of paint. Let me ask you something. How are you doing in this area? Are you a person of conviction or convenience? Do you make decisions based on principle or pleasure? I was talking with James the other day and he said, you know, sometimes I talk to people and tell them what they should do and they turn to me and say, I thought you were on my side. And James says, I have to tell him, no, I'm on God's side. You see, when God makes a statement in Scripture, we have to get on His side. And if you're not doing that, then you are compromising your convictions. And you need to stop. Because I will guarantee you that one day, may not even be in this lifetime, but one day you will say, I wish... I had listened to God's Word. I wish I had listened to my parents. I wish I had listened to my youth pastor. I wish I had listened to that bald-headed guy that kept talking to me every week. Second area of compromise is his commitments in verses 4 to 9. Notice verse 4. However, his father and mother did not know that it was of the Lord, for he was seeking an occasion against the Philistines. Now, at that time, the Philistines were ruling over Israel. Now, what this verse tells us is that God is using Samson in spite of his sin as an instrument of judgment against the Philistines. Don't take this wrong. Don't take this to say, well, I might as well go ahead and sin because God can use me. This is just showing us the power of the providence of God. That even though Samson is disobeying, God is still able to use that for his purposes. And then notice verse 5, Then Samson went down to Timnah with his father and mother. And by the way, if you're a child, this is the worst situation you can put your parents in to drag them into a godless marriage. The best they can do is ride shotgun on your stagecoach that is descending out of control. And so Samson's parents are tagging along with this boy who is going against everything they have ever taught him. And then verse 5 continues... And they came as far as the vineyards of Timnah, and behold, a young lion came roaring toward him. The Spirit of the Lord came upon him mightily, so that he tore him as one tears a young goat, though he had nothing in his hand. Now, what's going on here? Well, this is another crossing gate at the railroad track. This is another stop sign. You see, one of the commitments of a Nazarite is that he can't touch anything dead. And since this passage tells us he didn't have a weapon, that tells us he just touched a dead body. According to Numbers chapter 6, he should stop immediately, 
Go to the temple in Shiloh, offer a sacrifice, cut his hair off, and start over with his vow. You see, I think God has put a lion in front of his path to turn him back. And that's the way God operates in our lives. That's why the Bible says the way of the transgressor is hard. That's why the Bible says those whom the Lord loves, he disciplines, he chastens. When we start to go down a path like this, God puts obstacles in our way to turn us back. But you see, Samson is strong, and so he can handle it. I like what the writer says here in verse 9. He says, he took the lion and tore him as one tears a young goat. You, you all know what that's like. That sounds pretty tough to me, you know, tearing open a goat, but, but that's a lot easier than a lion. But notice the end of verse 6. But he did not tell his father or mother what he had done. Now, they're traveling together, but I'm assuming he's interested in this girl, so he's walking way ahead. He encounters the lion, kills the lion, and he doesn't tell his parents. Why not? Because he's hiding it. You see, he has a public persona of a Nazarite, but he has a private persona of a boy who is compromising his commitment. We have a term for that. What is it? Hypocrite. And then notice verse 7. So we went down and talked to the woman, and she looked good to Samson. That's a great reason for a marriage, isn't it? It says he talked to her. Did she say anything significant? I don't know. She looks good. Verse 8. When he returned later to take her, this is he's coming for the marriage, he turned aside to look at the carcass of the lion, and behold, a swarm of bees and honey were in the body of the lion, so he scraped the honey into his hands and went on eating as he went. When he came to his father and mother, he gave some to them, and they ate it, but he did not tell them that he had scraped the honey out of the body of the lion. Now, how many of you, if you came across some roadkill, and you looked carefully and you saw some honey inside the carcass, would reach in there and say, hmm, I'm going to taste that. You see, now, not only is he touching something unclean, he's now going to eat from it. And I think this is a great picture of the nature of sin. Sin gets progressively worse. It goes from touching to tasting. Sin tastes sweet initially. Sin always spreads to others. What does he do? He shares it with his parents so that they also become unclean. And then sin is always compounded by more sin. Because what does he do? He doesn't tell his parents. He hides it. He's getting more and more deceitful and more and more calloused. And I think this is a great visual image of a hypocrite in verse 9 where it says, he went on eating as he went. He went on sinning as he goes, giving it to others, 
and telling nobody. And then thirdly, he compromises his companions in verses 10 to 17. Notice verse 10. Then his father went down to the woman, and Samson made a feast there, for the young men customarily did this. Now this is the wedding feast. Verse 11. When they saw him, they brought 30 companions to be with him. Who are Samson's companions? 30 Philistines. Now this tells me that he didn't have Jewish friends. He only has Philistine friends. Why? Because when you're a hypocrite, listen, when you're a hypocrite, you don't want friends who will challenge you morally. Verse 12. Then Samson said to them, Let me now propound a riddle to you. If you will indeed tell it to me within the seven days of the feast and find it out, then I will give you 30 linen wraps and 30 changes of clothes. But if you are unable to tell me, then you shall give me 30 linen wraps and 30 changes of clothes. And they said to him, Propound your riddle that we may hear it. So he said to them, out of the eater, the lion, came something to eat, and out of the strong came something sweet, honey. You say, what's going on here? Well, he's not only enjoying sin and sharing sin and hiding sin, he is now laughing about sin. You see, what should have been an embarrassment to him, he had broken his Nazarite vow to God, what should have been an embarrassment to him is something to joke about. Now it's something that's funny. And you see, sin always has a downward spiral. With every step, you're descending. And the end of verse 14 says they couldn't tell the riddle in three days. So verse 15 says, Then it came about on the fourth day that they said to Samson's wife, Entice your husband so that he will tell us the riddle or we will burn you and your father's house with fire. Have you invited us to impoverish us? Did you invite us to the feast so you could take our money? This is interesting because this is really what happens when you wed yourself with the Philistines. You don't bring them up morally they bring you down morally. And then verse 16 says, Samson's wife wept before him and said, You only hate me and you do not love me. You have propounded a riddle to the sons of my people and have not told it to me. This is the weepy wife syndrome. She's working on his emotions. And notice what he says at the end of verse 16. And he said to her, Behold, I have not told it to my father or mother, so should I tell it to you? Now notice what he said. He says, What do you expect? I'm not even being forthright with my parents. Why should I be forthright with you? There's a great principle here, ladies, if you're looking for a husband. The guy who will deceive his parents will someday deceive you. See, he's already established a pattern 
of deceit with God's authority figures in his life. Don't expect you're going to change him and he's going to become real open and honest with you. He's got a pattern of deception already in his life. And verse 17 says, However, she wept before him seven days while their feast lasted. And on the seventh day he told her because she pressed him so hard, she then told the riddle to the sons of her people. No trust, no confidentiality, no faithfulness in this relationship. She puts others ahead of him. And let me tell you, this is what happens when you compromise your companions. I can always tell a lot about people by who they have standing up in their marriage, in their wedding. You know, they come in my office and they talk and they talk about how the Lord's in the center of their relationship. But I'm always curious to see who is it that's standing here? What kind of people are they that are really your close friends that are impacting your life? You see, a person's choice of friends reflects where they're at spiritually. Samson chose pagan friends and they acted like it. They stabbed him in the back. Then fourthly, he compromised his consequences. You say, well, Dan, how do you compromise your consequences? Well, that's when rather than accepting your consequences, rather than saying, you know what, maybe God is allowing this consequence. Or maybe this is a consequence based on the stupid decision that I made. Instead of accepting your consequences, you try to fix them. Or you try to reverse them. Let's see how Samson does that. Look at verse 18. So the men of the city said to him on the seventh day before the sun went down, what is sweeter than honey and what is stronger than a lion? Bingo. We got the riddle. And now he's out 30 sets of clothes. And notice what he says at the end of verse 18. And he said to them, If you had not plowed with my heifer, you would not have found out my riddle. Now what's that mean? Some of you think you know already. You come home from work, and your neighbor's mowing his grass with your lawnmower. And he didn't ask. He just got into your tool shed and took your lawnmower. That's what it means to plow with your heifer. Now, he may be using that in a more figurative sense here, but what he's certainly saying is, you're trespassing. You guys crossed the line. You had no right to do that. You did me wrong. Now, I would want to say to him at this point, what do you expect? You're sleeping with the Philistines. What do you expect them to do to you? But rather than realizing that this is the consequence of his behavior, he tries to fix it. Notice verse 19. Then the Spirit of the Lord came upon him mightily, and he went down to Ashkelon, that's another city of the Philistines, and he killed 30 of them and took their spoil and gave the changes of clothes to those who told the riddle. Now that's one way to shop. Went down there and killed 30 guys, took their clothes, brought them up, and paid off his debt that he had lost the bet. And again, he touched 30 dead bodies. And then at the end of verse 19, it says, And his anger burned, and he went up to his father's house. He got mad and went home to mommy. 
Now, when I say the name Samson, you think of a very strong man, but he isn't. He's really very weak. He's overcome by lust, by pride, by anger. And then verse 20 adds, but Samson's wife was given to his companion who had been his friend or literally his best man. He lost his wife and she was given to his best man. Now, what would you say at this moment if you're counseling Samson? I would say, I know you're angry and I know you're hurt, but this could be a blessing. It's time for you to walk away. It's time for you to get out of this situation. Go to the priest, make a sacrifice, cut your hair, and get right with God. Start paying more attention to your heart than you do to your hair. What does Samson do? Chapter 15, verse 1. But after a while, in the time of wheat harvest, Samson visited his wife, with a young goat and said, I will go into my wife in her room. He should have taken a young goat to the temple and got his relationship right with God. Instead, what does he do? He takes a goat and goes to his ex-wife, who's now remarried, and he's going to make things right. I assume the goat is his idea of flowers. So he's, he's bringing a goat along and he's going to his wife and he says, I'm going to go into her room. What's he going for? He's going for sex. What moves Samson? The lust of the eyes? The lust of the flesh? Sexual appetite? The pride of life? He's going to get even. I'm not a deer hunter but I'm told that the best way to attract a buck is to put food out for him so he sees it. And I'm told that's illegal in Missouri, but in other states you can do that. Put out food for him. He sees it, he comes, he comes back and you shoot him. Or you can get the scent of a female. A lot of hunters wear that. The scent of a female to attract a buck so he comes around and you shoot him. Or you can take a couple antlers and scrape them together. And he thinks that two rival bucks are contending for his females. So he comes running out of pride. Samson is just that base. He has animal instincts. And because of that, he's an easy target. And doesn't he look like a fool here? He's waltzing into Timnah with a goat saying, I'm going to go to my wife. And she's not his wife anymore. Proverbs 27, 22 says, Though you pound a fool in mortar with a pestle, yet his foolishness will not depart from him. And then look at the bottom of verse 1. It says, But her father did not let him enter. Her father said, I really thought that you hated her intensely, so I gave her to your companion. Is not her younger sister more beautiful than she? Please let her be yours instead. Now, this Philistine man knows exactly what interests Samson. 
So I, I gave your wife away, but her younger sister's much prettier. You'll like her. And then in verses 3 to 5, Samson gets even. He takes 300 foxes, ties them in pairs by their tails, put a torch between them, and turns them loose in the time of wheat harvest. And they burn down the grain, the vineyards, and the groves. And then look at verse 6. Then the Philistines said, Who did this? And they said, Samson, the son-in-law of the Timnite, because he took his wife and gave her to his companion. So the Philistines came up and burned her and her father with fire. Now she's dead and her father's dead. He's trying to fix the consequences and he's just compounding the consequences. And then notice verse 7. Samson said to them, Since you act like this, I will surely take revenge on you, but after that I'll quit. You ever play that with your brother? You hit him and then you say, we're done, we're even. That, that's it. That's what Samson said. I'm going to get revenge here and then we're done. We're, we're, we're finished at that point. What I find interesting in this passage is there's no prayer. There's no quoting of Scripture. There's no seeking God's direction. He's just counterpunching. They punch him, he punches back. And then notice verse 8. It says... He struck them ruthlessly with a great slaughter. That word ruthlessly means hip on thigh. Some suggest he, he sliced them up into body parts and just stacked them that way. A ruthless slaughter. And then it says, He went down and lived in the cleft of the rock of Edom. He says, We're even. Let's call it quits. But he knows it's not over, so he goes down and lives in the cleft of the rock. Why is he living there? To protect his back. He's like a gunfighter with his back to the wall. And you'd have to think, at least you'd have to hope, that at this point in his life, he would stop and take some inventory. Because his life is a shambles. He's broken his vow before God. He's broken the hearts of his parents. He's got a little Philistine girl that he didn't share God with. He just used her, and she's now dead. Her house is smoking ashes. The wheat fields are smoking ashes. There's 30 people dead in Ashkelon. There's multitudes slaughtered in Timnah. Jesus said, beware of the leaven of the Pharisees. What's the leaven of the Pharisees? hypocrisy a little leaven leavens the whole loaf a little compromise leads to a lot of consequences fifth area his celebrity notice verse 9 it says then the Philistines went up and camped in Judah and spread out in Lehi we're about to have a war here and in verses 10 to 13, we find that, the, 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 that Judah negotiates with the Philistines. And so they tie up Samson and surrender him to the Philistines. Now this is interesting because this is God's deliverer. This is the man God has raised up. You would expect Judah to stand with him. The Philistines come up, it's time for war. They should have got behind Samson and gone to war, but they don't do that. You know why? Why? because he doesn't look 
like a deliverer. He's sleeping with the enemy. But there's also another reason, and that is they don't want a deliverer. They don't want to rock the boat. You see, they prefer to coexist with the Philistines rather than to have to fight the Philistines because compromise was the nature of the day. And then look at verse 14. It says, When he, Samson, came to Lehi bound up, the Philistines shouted as they met him, and it says that Samson broke his ropes Grab the jawbone of a donkey. Now, how this guy finds so much dead stuff, I don't know. He grabs the jawbone of a donkey and he kills a thousand men. And then look at verse 17. When he had finished speaking, he threw the jawbone from his hand and he named that place Ramoth Lehi. Now, most of the time in the Bible, when someone names a place, it's named after God. When Jacob had his dream of the ladder to heaven, he woke up and named that place Bethel, the house of God. When he wrestled with God and he got done, he named that place Peniel, the face of God. When Abraham was on the mountain with Isaac and he found the ram that replaced his son on the altar, he named that place Jehovah-Jireh. God will provide. Samson kills a thousand men in the strength of God. And he names the place Ramoth-Lehi. You know what that means? The place of the jawbone. What's that? Rather than honoring God, he honors the donkey. And then notice verse 18. Then he became very thirsty, and he called to the Lord and said, You have given this great deliverance by the hand of your servant, and now shall I die of thirst and fall into the hands of the uncircumcised. Now this is the first prayer we hear him utter. He says, I'm thirsty. Are you going to let me die here? How's that for a prayer? If you were God, how would you answer this prayer? Well, I'm thankful that you're not God. Because God responds in mercy to Samson. In verse 19 it says, But God split the hollow place that is in Lehi so that water came out of it. When he drank, his strength returned and he revived. Therefore he named it in Hakur, which is in Lehi to this day. Samson got a drink, got revived, and named the place in Hakur. Know what that means? The spring of him who called. Now why couldn't he name it the spring of him who answered? You see, once again, he doesn't name the place after God. He names it after himself. He could have used his celebrity to honor God. But instead, he compromised and honored himself. And then verse 20 says he judged Israel 20 years in the days of the Philistines. Which brings us to our final point. He compromised his character. Now he really compromised his character long before, but now it's going to become real obvious. Somebody has said, reputation is what you are in public. Character is what you are in private. 
And now Samson's private life is going to become public. Look at verse 1. Now Samson went to Gaza and saw a harlot there, and he went into her. Now he isn't cloaking anything in orthodoxy. He's just blatantly disobedient. And that's the nature of sin. It hardens you. And then notice verse 2. When it was told to the Gazites, saying, Samson has come here, they surrounded the place and lay in wait for him all night at the gate of the city. And they kept silent all night, saying, Shh, let us wait until the morning light, then we will kill him. Now Samson lay until midnight, and at midnight he arose and took hold of the doors of the city gate and the two posts and pulled them up along with the bars. Then he put them on his shoulders and carried them up to the top of the mountain, which is opposite Hebron. Now to understand this story, you have to realize Hebron is 38 miles from Gaza. And when he gets there, he doesn't just drop them by the road. He takes them up on top of a mountain. If Cape Girardeau was Gaza, that's like the mayor would wake up the next morning and say, I need about 100 guys to go get the city gates, which would be huge. And from Cape, it would be like going to Fredericktown to get them on the top of a mountain. See, Samson is no longer hiding sin. He is making a public display of it. He is flaunting it. See, I would expect someone who gets caught with a prostitute to flee as fast as they can, covering their face. What does Samson do? He turns it into a circus act. He makes it an event that everybody is going to remember. Everybody's talking about what Samson did at Gaza, and they're saying, you know why he was there? He was there to see a prostitute. What is Samson's testimony to the Philippines? Philistines. What, what is the testimony of this guy who has taken the Nazarite vow? Well, I think his testimony is saying to the Philistines that God is unholy. He's taken a vow that says, I am set apart unto God. And instead, all of his actions are dragging the name of God through the mud. If you were God, what would you do? Give him a command? He's already done that. Confront him with the most influential people in his life? He's already done that. Put a lion in his path? He's already done that. Let him reap some consequences? He's already done that. Be good and merciful to him for 20 years? He's already done that. You see, to get Samson's attention, he's going to have to hit the bottom. And that's going to happen in chapter 16, beginning at verse 4, when he meets his match, Delilah. You know what the name Delilah means? It means to extinguish. Last week I told you what Samson means. What Samson means? Son. S-U-N. This is where the light is going to be 
extinguished. And next time, we're going to look at that in a, in a message that I'm going to call a he-man with a she-weakness. But this morning, I want to close by making sure that you understand the lesson for us today. And the lesson is real simple. If you find yourself in chapter 16 and verse 1, if you find yourself in Gaza going into a prostitute, you didn't get there overnight. It's a slow, gradual process of compromise. You compromise your convictions, your commitments, your companions, your consequences, your celebrity, your character. And so this morning, if you find yourself anywhere on that path, anywhere going down that path, my question for you this morning is, what is it going to take for you to turn around and get right with God? I'm going to give you the opportunity as we close to spend some 